Welcome to Regenerative Spaces, a podcast that explores holistic and sustainable paths toward thriving in the fields of agriculture, education, spirituality, and beyond. I'm your host, Stacy Poliche. I'm a regenerative farmer in Santa Barbara, California, with a background of three plus decades as a psychologist, environmental activist, author, and educator. Each week on this show, I get to chat with one of the essential teachers who has informed my own path and whose regenerative wisdom I want to share with you. And today we have a treat. Corey Wells is a well-known horticulturist in the world of botanic gardens. For over three decades, he's been the go-to person for managing the plant collections at Lotus Land, which is one of the country's top exotic gardens, spanning 40 acres with 14 historic gardens. As a prominent authority in sustainable horticulture, Corey frequently lends his expertise to assist gardens nationwide in embracing environmentally friendly practices. We're thrilled to have him on today's show to share his knowledge and contagious enthusiasm. By the end of this episode, we hope you'll have picked up at least one sustainable gardening tip you can apply at home to. Hey, Corey, good to see you. Good morning, Stacy. Well, so I want to start today by just um, reflecting on when I met you. I met you in 2005, and you were working then as now at Lotus Land, and I'll ask you to describe that a little bit, but I had just discovered organic gardening and farming and composting, and you were sort of this unique person that a friend, a mutual friend, Eric Nagelman said, oh my gosh, you've got to talk to this guy. And you were brilliant. And you taught me that. And we brought it to our home in Montecito. We brought it to our ranch, our avocado ranch. And we actually designated some orchards fully organic certified because of you. And then most recently, you and I were both part of Lotus Land's Sustainability Symposium. So that's kind of our history, but your expertise is in botany, zoology, entomology, and marine biology. So how did you become one of the leading voices in horticulture across the country? Interesting, broad question. Well, that first part I like because our friend Eric does tie people, uh, like-minded people together in the most uh, unusual and interesting ways. So he brings people that can grow together who are doing big things. Um, and that's really important. It's a real talent he has. Um, that's true. But my background was, was actually perfect for the job that I took. And I sensed that right away, having a broad understanding of biology all the entomology, and then having some experience in landscape uh, management, it was perfect because now with a more holistic approach to landscapes, you do have to have a broad understanding of insects and birds and soil biology and how nutrients work in the soil. If you're just focused on one, you're kind of, uh, you're probably gonna have a hard time getting everything to operate together in one, really nice package so really a holistic approach it's a holistic approach that's i always wanted to emphasize that um at the symposium where we recently were at that uh all these components are great on their own but when you combine them it goes 10x that's Mm -hmm. what i really want people to understand when you add in beneficial insects with organic practices with organic fertilizers and mulches and all that it comes together in a way that uh protects the land, protects your investment, does all these extra things, protects the environment Mm -hmm. overall. Uh, And so there's that extra power you get by having these ecological services working together. So that's my background really suited me well for that because I was, wasn't just thinking of botany or, or horticulture that that's, that's great. And I needed a job actually. So those are skills, you know, horticulture is kind of is a skill, the growing of plants and crops. Uh, and that's, you can stop there, but my was lucky enough to have interest far before that as a child, even in entomology and 
I just had a natural um, uh, proclivity. Is that the word I'm looking for? Or natural mm-hmm. tendency yeah. to these things. I would collect extremely dangerous insects at like age nine and oh, hand wow. these pinned out collections to my mom of these ex- in uh, really uh, dangerous wasps and things. I always love to share that. She'd be horrified when she got these collections and quickly <laughs> remove them from our space. But I've never got stung at. I remember by some of those dangerous insects because a child's hands just work with such confidence. And so, so when I get a, I got a job, you know, 40 years later or whatever it was, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was, it wasn't 40 years later. Cause if I was nine, it would be like 21 years later. Cause I started it about 27 at Lotus land. Oh, wow. Uh, now I want to bracket <laughs> something out, Corey, if I might. And that is your unusual curiosity and passion as a child that we might say, we could educate that out of you because it doesn't make sense. Like, why do you have this passion? But they all ended up making sense. And I just want to highlight that. That's what I want to highlight too. Like if you follow yeah. that passion, you don't lose your, your natural um, skills and talents. Oh my gosh. It's like, they're paying you to do what you love. They're, you know, it's money does money almost loses its meaning because you're so focused on, uh, producing this art it becomes like your work is an art then it's not like work i can't tell you how many breaks i've missed or how many times i worked late and a couple times it was like dark outside when i would finish the project and i had lost all track of time and that's the best way to work when you you're not thinking about the next break or that sort of thing right you don't care about this is truly who you are and it just all merged and your arrival at Lotus Land 33 years ago. Tell us a little bit about the history, a little bit about the history of Lotus Land for those who aren't familiar. And then, you know, you know, Ganawalska, blah, blah, all of that. And then I want to hear more specifics, but just give us a little tidbit about what that property is well on the surface lotus ends the botanic garden but when i got there it wasn't even open to the public so you have this 40 acre home and it's a with a a person that owned uh, one of the owners the the latest one developed a huge collection of plants which often happens to these large estates and if you look across america many of the great estates became botanic gardens the duponts and different uh, moguls built botanic gardens when they were gone from their properties, which started as Arboretum usually because they had a lot of trees and it was like a park setting. So they started in kind of not necessarily the purest way. It was someone's home and they chose whatever plants they wanted. In our case, luckily, we were, the plants were well suited to our environment. Uh, Lotus Sand being 40 acres, about 19 or 20 of it is actual collections. And of those collections, uh, uh, one particular collection is, is extremely well developed, the cycads, very primitive plants. That's mm-hmm. a crown jewel, probably worth like a million dollars or something like that. So that's wow. a madam, uh, the madam that owned the property, Madame Ganovalska, uh, a, a Polish opera singer, diva, you might say, who has a really interesting history of of creativity and arts and dance and opera and, and showmanship type of things. She developed the property with that in mind. Yeah, it was really all about the aesthetics she was after. She wasn't a botanist or something like that or, or a landscape architect by any stretch, but she had vision of art. So here she had a property that she managed to capture in the most beautiful environment, perfect climate to grow Mediterranean plants. And it was big enough that it could later become a botanic garden. You know, 40 acres is a good size. Some gardens are quite a bit bigger. Some There's some botanic gardens that are only one acre in Los Angeles. I've lectured okay. that. So it's interesting to see. I always felt that was a good size to do what I wanted to do is we're up against the chaparral. And I thought, well, this is a there's a huge uh, rural urban interface. So that is a really a, a point we should tease out at some point because that's critical when you have that many wild animals coming and going, you know, the coyotes, the bobcats, the fox, all those sorts of critters, that's a big challenge. Now you can destroy all that or you can work in harmony with it. Mm. So my talents came into Madam's property with that in mind that I could work with these animals, these insects in that urban rural interface. 
and that that's kind of my expertise is is dancing with those things most people are horrified by that stuff and most properties do a pretty bad job of managing those things but we're able to go completely non-toxic and work with that and that's kind of that's part of what we're training people to do and that was 33 years ago we started Nice and I hear, you know, what we might see as um, enemies of the project. I mean, that's maybe not the way to say it, but, you know, the deer might eat what we've just planted and how do we prevent or keep away or how do we, you know, that kind of thing. And what I'm hearing you say is they're developed an approach of how do we integrate the all of it in a way. Yes. Um, and so I'm kind of curious to hear you know, here's this property in Montecito, California. It was private. Then it becomes a botanic garden. And what are some of the major differences or changes, evolutions that you experienced over time? Or maybe they were a product of your own evolution. Yeah, well, Lotus Sun's one of their biggest stories that most people ask me to say is the huge transition from the... Uh, Big, big ag conventional approach, which was what we inherited, to an organic holistic approach, which was much more efficient and effective. But that took, you know, uh, decades. When I first got to the property, remember, all the advisors for all botanic gardens were from big agricultural um, backgrounds. And the reason that is because there never was any advisors for ornamental horticulture. Why would there be? Oh. The money is in agriculture. So people don't realize that they thought, well, aren't you getting good advice? Well, no, my advisors are good with soy, wheat, corn, avocados, not cycads, ferns, begonias, and things like that. So most people wow. get their advice from the corner store, really, or they open up That's a couple magazines and try to figure it out on their own. There's no licensed advisors with degrees in ornamental horticulture. What I'm hearing is that you started, when you started at Lotus Land, that you were using big ag recommendations and that you did evolve into horticulture specific. Can you summarize what that looked like a little bit? We started with the big ag uh, recommendations because that's all that was available at the time. So I'm a certified applicator. I know how to use all the chemicals, all the pesticides, all the synthetic fertilizers. And we actually embraced that because we had, we wanted to be successful. So we played that, right. we played that all the way out, Stacy, all the way out. We were really good mm -hmm. at following the recommendations to a T. We faced challenges. The soil became unmanageable, hard, dry, cracked, erosion, dust. Everything was just terrible like that. And we realized, okay, that's a problem. And on top of that, we, we hit other challenges. We started having massive pests. Every every collection had insects infesting them, aphids, mealybug, whitefly, thrip, mites. I remember like it was yesterday. This is 33 years ago. I remember like it was yesterday. I have the record showing all the myriad of uh, fungicides, insecticides, molluscicides, rodenticides, poisons to try to combat all these various problems. That's a list. And then your specifics, you know, 18 years ago, I know you were doing compost and compost teas. So that was one ingredient of your new horticultural pra practices. But what else would you say goes in that list? So as we hit the challenges, then we realized, okay, well, this is an opportunity. Let's try these organic approaches. So we started experimenting with the very first compost, compost teas made. We went through four different machines because they, were, uh, in, they weren't designed very good in the beginning. Then we tried different organic fertilizers and said, oh, that's easy to work with. Oh, that one's not as easy. Liquids and granules and things. Then we realized, well, what about all this green waste? Can't we make compost out of this or mulches? We started that program. We had none before. So we started making these big changes and realizing, well, we've got to use what we've got here on the land to solve this problem. So that means compost and mulches and using locally sourced, if we can, organic fertilizers. And then we started looking at the beneficial insects, like maybe we don't need to spray these so much. Maybe we need to encourage them and actually release more beneficial insects. So you can see there was this trend because there were so many problems from big ag advice and that chemical solution to experimenting with the first organics 
and they seemed too expensive at the time. Like, will we really get a return on our investment? And then we started realizing, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute, this, this is working. This is working really good. I mean, this is working so good. 80% of the problems went away in the first probably like three or four years. We're like, oh. Just by what you were no longer practicing. I mean, that's a big part is what, what you stop doing. Yeah. Important, what you don't do. And then yeah. the other thing is using organic, using compost, and then bringing in insects and the beneficials and even bringing in what they call bug in a jug, where you actually can buy uh, thousands of insects that you need and bring them into your garden. You did that. And then do you, and then I heard you talk about kelp and there are certain additives that you use like a liquid kelp. Yeah. Water soluble kelp is a great starter. It has dozens and dozens of growth promoting compounds in it, all kinds mm -hmm. of things. It's mm -hmm. not high in, in nitrogen, which means fast growth. That's what's beautiful. It has the micros in it and all, and many other compounds that help harden the plant to make it protect from frost and other stresses. So the plant mm -hmm. naturally is tough. And that's super important when you're talking about plants and farming. Think of the applications for farmers to get frost protection and heat protection. Those are huge. Mm -hmm. Those are huge. And then we have a alfalfa meal and fish hydrolysate and other good stuff that are, we can add. And then I know there's something called, is it azomite or mm -hmm. azomite that that's has it. micronutrients? Yeah, that's it. It's, it's everything in the periodic table, literally. It's, it's, a, it's, just, oh, wow. it's volcanic ash. So that's pyroclastic ash from a volcano. And these, there's these massive deposits in many parts of the world. And they basically uh, micronize it by crushing it into a fine powder. Sometimes they put it back into a pellet even. And that provides uh, a parent material. You can sprinkle this dusting around fruit trees and your um, potted plants and whatnot. Provides okay. all the minerals a plant will need. And it'll actually pick and choose what it wants. That's what a healthy okay. soil does. The plant I've seen that at the local it. nursery too. Yeah. So I know you azomite, can get yeah. that. Yeah, azomite. Okay. Well, so I'm hearing sort of a outer environment of agriculture, horticulture, and how we manage plants, how we define the type of plants we're growing. That has evolved to specialize a little bit more. And internally within Lotus Land, I'm kind of curious about how those transitions happened and if there was a turning point for you with why you changed practices. Well, there's two questions I'm hearing there. Like one of them was plant mm -hmm. choices and how that evolved a bit because our collections mm -hmm. have evolved quite a bit mm -hmm. to smarter choices. We still kept mm -hmm. our main collections, but we had to. We realized people were making poor choices with plant selection. But then there's also through that is the uh, theme of slowly transitioning over to sustainable organics from the pesticides and the chemical fertilizers. So that's, there's two stories there. The, 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 and remember, I'll always tell, I want people to know that chemical fertilizers are by far worse than the pesticides. People may not realize that in terms of causing disease. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, pesticides so can be- Fertilizer yeah. is worse for the land than the pesticides. Fertilizer causes 75% of all the problems on the land. The pesticides are only there because of the fertilizers. That's what people wow. don't understand. So when you have frost damage, that's related to the fertilizers. We don't have the frost oh. damage anymore. When you have uh, insects attacking like aphids and mealybugs and all these little um, irritating, frustrating problems on your landscape plants, those are 80% uh, caused, 75 to 80% caused by fertilizers. Think about that. The miracle grows all those products because they are they cause too much growth too fast and too high sugar contents in the plants so okay. think about that if you is stop using analogy that. is there an analogy to human health because oh I my think gosh immediately immediately right how what would you say is this like steroids or what would you call well, it? not steroids most of our remember we uh, just about every doctor will tell you most of the american diet causes inflammation and so if you can bring down the inflammation of all your organs and your body parts, you, you'll realize that many of your uh, symptoms go away. So the high fructose you know, diets heard, and all that. I've heard um, 
actually it was Thomas Lloyd Butler at the symposium said that, I think he said fertilizer is like crack for plants. Yeah, that's like a crack. For yeah, that's a, plants. that's so a way of saying it. Is that an analogy we could say? Like it really uh, hyper productivity, but it robs the organism of its actual um, immune system. Vitality <laughs> yeah. and immunity. Is, yeah. that, is that an analogy for real? Well, like to be a little more scientific about it, but you could on the surface, you could say it, it's, it's about as devastating as crack. Um, right. But on a more scientific level, it's literally causing too much production of sugars and shoot growth, which is weak and vulnerable to frost, heat, or uh, pests. Think about it. An insect wants sugars. So why wouldn't they jump on a plant that's producing too many sugars? So that's why you see um, okay. like roses will be covered in aphids. Mm -hmm. But if you slow down that growth and make it stronger, like ours, we don't even have aphids on the roses. People are like, well, that's unusual. How come everyone else's roses has aphids? I'm like, well, pay attention. I'll tell you what we use. We use low nitrogen organic fertilizers, which are slower and gentler to the environment and provide all sorts of micronutrients. And so that, again, the fertilizers are, are, are the key. Remember at the symposium, I said, it's in the water. I said it's in the water. So that means Lotus M was putting in all of its water for the plants in the old days, the chemical fertilizers, because they're designed to go into the water and be invisible and, you know, just go into everything, the trees, the shrubs, everything. And we couldn't understand why we were having pests at all levels, trees, shrubs, tiny plants. What was the common denominator? It took decades to figure this out. And when it got so bad, finally plants were just dying. Because Whoa. those things all, they sterilize the soil. Remember, chemical fertilizers bleach the soil like salts because they, they bypass all soil biology, killing it. And then it, the fertilizer goes right into the plant. So you're left with uh, the dust bowl, dead, cracked soil over time. It is hard as a rock. Oh. See, so we have to, so once we switch over to the organics, well, we already solved half the problems. Then we remove the pesticides. Now we're getting down to just a very small number of problems you're experiencing. That last bit can be broken into two things. Poor horticulture, you don't know your plants, so it, uh, you should know what you're growing. Try to find out the name, where it's from, how, does it grow in your area, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Put it in the right light, give it the right amount of water. They're probably pretty good. And then the last part would be maybe invasive new insects that are introduced every year. This is, that's my, algorithm that's what i want everyone to know 75 percent of the problems fertilizer the next big chunk is pesticide to remove those then you have just uh, if you can make sure your horticulture is just decent and then if there's invasive bugs that come in they just have to work their way through the environment you can't try to spray your way out of that oh so there's a little bit of an allowance because now you've reduced the risk factors Down considerably. Tiny amounts, just tiny. And then if there's a new pest you're saying that may come in, which they do from other places or whatnot is what you're saying, yeah. then those, you to some degree, let them pass through? Is yes, that what you're that's saying? the only option wow. we really have. Every year we get eight new pests through our major ports, Long Beach, San Francisco. These are major ports with world travel now. This is what this uh, federal uh, you know, biologists are measuring. I've been to seminars where they tell you, we're, we have about eight, give or take. Beetles okay. come in, on pallets of wood, and you can't get rid of all of them. So there, we have, uh, you may have seen some with your avocado orchards, the shot hole bore. You probably have heard of that. That was a huge scare in the last few years. We thought it was going to wipe out all the avocados in California. Mm -hmm. Luckily, it turned out to be not as big a problem, and it slowly has been absorbed. So what, right. to, the only thing you can really do if you want to be on the cutting edge to combat invasive species of weird insects that are coming in like beetles is the first yep. part, get the fertilizers switch over, the pesticides are reduced, learn your plants, and then double down on habitat planting for beneficial insects. You will, you'll get into such a high percentile of success You'll be part of 1% of 1%, like Lotus Land. That, that's why we're so successful. You're in 1% of 1% where there's so many things working in your favor. There's no way a pest has a chance. 
Well, let me unpack that one a little bit because that's yeah. right where I'm at with our ranch. Yeah. Is so you called it habitat, um, insect habitat gardens. So I right now think I understand there being pollinator plants. So those are the ones that attract, it's not just bees, it's wasps and flies and birds and all the things that flutter that actually move pollen, which is what we need in any healthy garden. But also there's a, a terminology, if I have it right, beneficial plants. And those would be the, the plants and flowering um weeds in some cases, you know, what we think of as weeds, but those are the ones that bring in the natural enemy to our predator insects. So if we get thrips for on avocados, well, pirate bugs and lace wings are the natural enemies of those. So we want to plant things that those bugs love. And that I think of as a beneficial planting and do you call it that do exactly. i have to, i mean the terminology no, that was in very all well areas is the challenge yeah me. well and think it, about it first off every university in in the united states now has a department doing exactly with what you just said trying to show people that if you can provide pollen and nectar anywhere in your landscape you're gonna you're gonna add those ecological services or those benefits and you won't have to do anything else the, the insects are already in the environment They'll come to your property and they'll multiply and they'll take care of the problems. So how do you know which plants to plant? Well, let's make it easy. All native plants are on the palette. So you just got to okay. figure out. So that can be, but you don't want all just native. native for most, your area. Yeah, all of those. So every native California plant for our area is potentially good. But not people are not going to plant all natives. I understand that. I get it. I work in an ornamental garden at the highest level of aesthetics. So I totally accept that charge. So I said, okay, well, let's look at your ornamental plants. How many of those are beneficial producing pollen and nectar for the insects and birds and things? Because remember, birds eat insects. So you, you don't get birds if you don't feed the insects. You're not going to get the insects if you don't provide pollen and nectar. It's pretty simple. Right. So how many of the plants in your fancy, say you hire a landscape architect for $100,000 and they put in, they design a million dollar landscape. What percentage, I'm asking you a question here, obviously. What percentage of those plants do you think on average for your big fancy estate are, uh, without helping them at all, without talking to the architect, what percentage of those plants are going to be uh, good for this new sustainable plan that we, you and I are aware of? What percentage does naturally do most architects? Are you asking what was recommended? Like what would be the recommended in order to keep it healthy? No, with the right, well, I'm just saying oh, what you're asking. What does the average person do? What does the do? average person do? Probably big, zero because almost zero. I almost used zero. Eric Nagelman. Yeah. So we used Eric Nagelman and he knows this stuff, but he never told us what yeah. he was doing. Well, yeah. And he's and not, he he's not your average person it. too. Yeah. Your average architect, and I'm not trying to be mean to architects too, they have to get the job done. And so they want a beautiful landscape. They're looking at aesthetics and traffic flows and other, you know, uh, functional things for uh, uh, a really safe, fancy landscape. But mm -hmm. it's really actually, it's 94% of what they plant is a dead zone. It provides uh, none of the right pollen or nectar, 94%. So if people knew that they're putting in a million dollar landscape and their architect's not telling them, well, actually, if we do it this way, it's going to be 94% dead. You will, you'll have a few birds float by, but nothing's going to want to stay. You won't have, you'll have very few butterflies. Now, there's a few exceptions like Eric and some other landscape architects that are a little more aware. But if you look at the big numbers across the state and across the country, so 94% is, is a dead zone. So if you have a large property and you create a dead zone and the guy next to you is a dead zone, and the one after that's a dead zone, you fracture the habitat for the urban rural interf interface. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do now is turn that around. We've patched together these big estates, which are doing beautiful landscapes with a high level of ornamental aesthetics too. Like they have roses, they have vegetables, they have all kinds of good things. But as they develop their habitat, we're patching the, the flyways 
and the migratory paths back together. Malibu's doing a great job. Santa Barbara's doing a great job. Parts of Los Angeles. San Diego's is turned it around. They've turned it around. They have the River Valley Fund now down there for the Central Valley in San Diego. I'm seeing bright spots across the state. And the other gardens across going east, you know, Midwest into the East Coast, many of them have been influenced by Lotus Land and their own uh, uh, universities, which are screaming this now. We can stitch back the habitat across the state and across the nation by managing our farms a little bit more regeneratively and managing our biggest states. And then actually the average homeowner can simply avoid using the toxic materials, start using organic approaches, plant a little bit of habitat maybe here and there if they have room. Right. And they've already done a lot. What I'm noticing personally is I'm having to retrain my eye. So let's say here at the ranch, what once was you don't want to see one quote unquote weed. I now call them volunteers. Um, because really that's a, that's a value judgment on a plant that shows up and all plants are just plants. Um, but the idea that we used to not want to see one weed on our property. So we were conventional. We used Roundup and all the nasties. And then we stopped and literally it has been a retraining for me because as Andy Schaefer said, mother nature is modest and she likes to be covered. And so bare ground evaporates at 85%, whereas covered ground, it's something like 12. So these little adjustments actually are requiring us to rethink what a beautiful landscape might look like, or a beautiful garden might look like. And what we used to think were weeds or chaparral was not something desirable, we're actually retraining. And I'm seeing it happen in our town of Santa Barbara. People have these beautiful gardens and yards that have succulents, which I've learned to love, and mixed in with these native pollinators and beneficials. And now that's beautiful to me. I love that. So it takes time. Yeah. Mother Nature is modest. I mean, if you look up in the hills, I can look out my window right now. Everything is covered, either covered with chaparral or somebody's, you know, beautiful landscape. But you don't see open soil anywhere in nature. Very rare. Once there's a few special geological formations, but they're there with special soil constituents and things. Um, But Mother Nature is always covered. So when you have a regenerative farm, you have to plant your way to success. When you, have, right. when you have a botanic garden, yes, you have to plant. Say that again. Say that again. When you again, have a farm or a botanic garden, especially at scale, you've got to plant your way to success. It's not about fighting. It's about out-competing with the right plants and the right insects and the right filling in the ecological niches. So if you need a cover crop to cover an area that's weedy, you have to start learning how to uh, uh, manage that land so your new Uh, desirable crops and cover crops and things are growing in those rows. If you try to just strip it down and kill, kill the bugs, kill the weeds, you're actually wasting time. You can't afford Mm. to, and you're actually depleting the land too. So that's going to hurt your investment. So if you really want to make money and protect your investment, plant your way to success. That's what I've done every time. So really, it's a focus on life promotion, promoting life rather than negating the life we don't want, killing or negating the life we don't want. It's more about promoting the life we do want. Yeah. Which is a really great Taoist concept, I'm going to say. But you said really, you know, a ranch or a, a botanical garden, but I don't know why this wouldn't be so for a homeowner as well. Yeah, I mean, plant well, your way to success in your garden. Plant your yeah, plant no you matter want. how big, right? Exactly. Okay. Now I want to. Okay, so it's scary. I'm going to go ahead and say, and maybe you felt scared too when you started on this journey, or maybe you were so desperate that you didn't care. You know, things are dying. What do I do? Um, we're in a position now of transitioning into some what we call regenerative practices. And we can talk about the differences between what we think of as sustainable or regenerative. But it's scary to try something so different than what is generations. I mean, really, it's not forever, but it's generations of wisdom says you use these chemical fertilizers. And I am having to go against 
we are going against the advice of our advisor, our farm advisor, because he is still very much convinced that chemistry is, is the way. And, um, not that this doesn't include chemistry, but it's using biology to encourage more organic, natural chemistry, something like that. Well, but what do you do and how long does it take to transition? Well, it's interesting, too. There's, there's a little bit to tease out there now. When you, uh, okay. Many of the agricultural advisors, remember, I was 27 and, and trained as an applicator. So I'm, an, I'm actually a, a certified applicator for all the nasties you talked about. So I did okay. all that. I'm really good at yeah. it, actually. I passed the test. We're forgiven. I passed We're the forgiven. test. Yeah. And so you do need to understand how chemistry works. That's Because chemistry is chemistry. You know, that is correct. But does it apply when you're talking about living things now? Because we're not just, you know, chemistry. We're biology. That's about interactions, you know, insects and birds and soil biology, converting nutrients. And so wait a minute now. We're really talking about biology, not just chemistry. And so once you stop using, you know, those awful fertilizers, you do have to understand that chemistry is what's going to convert fish and kelp and alfalfa milk into good fertilizer, right? Into good nutrients. Right. So there is. So, yeah. Well, I think, okay, it. so it seems what I keep hearing is like, oh, it's more expensive to do these methods and you're going to lose money if you're so wealthy or have a, a donor base that can afford this great but what if you don't want to lose money and tell me about that journey for lotus land with you know what's the finances of it and what's the like the staffing the labor hours of it you know how does That's that a good work? point what did you well find? i want to go back yeah. to what you said to answer that i want to start okay. back what you said so the, uh okay. it the soil most of the advisors are giving recommendations now on farmland, which is good topsoil. Where most of the tannic gardens are, though, is usually on somebody's hillside property. So our soils are very shallow. And so a guy giving you advice from the Central Valley or one of the coastal valleys that are farming, they can still use those chemicals and get away with it because their soils are 30 feet deep, possibly, and some of the best topsoil in the world. So that's why that model has continued and they keep giving uh, you and I advice. But we're, but we're telling them, well, we're actually not on that bottom land. Our soil is fragile. It's very shallow. And if I mess it up, things go south very quickly. Mm -hmm. So that's another good distinction to make. That's why those models are still being pushed onto us at our homes because they're made from advisors who have the luxury of dealing with some of the world's best topsoils. And so a little bit of those chemicals takes a while for it to destroy that environment. It can, they can go for decade after decade because those soils are evolved to, to be some of the most fertile, perfectly drained topsoils in the world. So it's kind of unfair that they'd be giving us advice when our, our home soils are often clay and rock ridden and you know chaparral. We have a much oak woodland. And, so there's a very different environment. That's why it's so hard for the advisors to give us advice because they're like, well, actually you're in a very challenging situation. I wouldn't grow a crop there where your house is. That's, that's right. not farmland. So what we're trying to do is learn how to do very delicate, beautiful landscapes and very challenging soils. Well, so also what I'm hearing is like human beings, different spaces of land, different places are unique to themselves so you can't do a one-size-fits-all is what you're yes, saying yes exactly that's a good you point have to know your own land and you know your own land and your own body it's like what you eat may not work for me exactly is it like that yeah, okay. totally it's very unique very if you have soil that's 18 inches deep and you have soil that's 30 feet deep and perfectly draining that's two vastly different situations so we started mm -hmm. to recognize that like oh those recommendations have no place here and it took us a long time and we almost lost some of our we did lose some of our most valuable ten thousand dollars of plant uh Ooh. losses yeah some of the most rare things extinct in the wild i mean really rare well, so plants. did you have to lose money um while transitioning and how has that Stacey, out? and we had to hit rock yeah. bottom we had okay. to hit rock bottom like an addict literally <laughs> That's how bad it got. There was a drought, remember back then, 89, 90, uh -huh. 91. It ended about 92. That was one of the most severe droughts. It, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. 
that's when you know what works and what doesn't work. When the environmental stresses come, like flooding or drought, then you can see how resilient is your plan. Do you know that ever since we switched back in 30 years ago and started making these big changes, every natural disaster has has uh, occurred and had almost zero effect on lotus land? How is that possible? How can the, you remember the drought and the flood and the fire, even the fire didn't get us a couple spots caught, but nothing burned up. They were able to put a couple small fires, even fires, wind. Or the deluge of rain this last oh, um, season. The water How runs. How did you guys fare? Well, in the old days, the topsoil would be running off the property because nothing was glued together with soil biology. Now, all the mulches and covered ground with insectary habitat, the water leaves the property clear. How That is a huge biological wow. event. And that's incredible to be able to clean water on 40 acres and have it move through the property with, that's a lot of rain at one time too. These are miracles that I've witnessed over 33 years. So again, I'm really going for this question because I want to know, did it cost more at first and then it paid off or is it more expensive? So you just have to raise more money to pay for this healthier way of doing things or does it turn out? I hear actually it ends up somehow being less expensive and less effort, but is that true? And give me some hope. Well, Tell me. for us, it actually was uh, more um, profitable, successful, and economic right away from the get-go because since we have those shallow soils that are fragile, I told you about kind of a mountainside oak woodland, when we brought them back to life, we immediately got benefits. So it was for us, we were lucky. We went so deeply into it because we live in an area that had lots of biologists, you know, entomologists and ornithologists and soil biologists, they were able to help us rebuild the, soil, that, the shallow soil we have, which is so critical. So we had uh, a complete turnaround in a very short time where all of a sudden all the problems just went away. And that was what really opened the floodgates. And we realized, oh, since we have such a fragile situation, it was easy to see the improvements right away. And you ended up... Um spending less spending more you spent less we spent time, less or? but more in certain areas so it was overall a lot less remember think about it when you're having to re do renovations at a hundred thousand dollars a pop to try to rebuild what died that gives you a lot of budget to do good things like buy organic fertilizers and buy seeds seeds are cheap <laughs> you know comparatively okay. i mean you can buy a lot of seeds for a hundred thousand dollars so if you don't have right. these damaging events where there's a hundred thousand dollars in you know rebuilding, think how much. I think I figured out that it paid for my budget for ten years, just the savings on some of the big renovations that we would have to do. So oh, my with a free I yeah, see. free budget. So like for instance, if I you know if I have a yard, if I have to replant every so many years because things actually you have to budget that in or if i have a farm i have to imagine replacing we're currently replacing some older trees and some of that's age but if we haven't managed it as healthy as we might have we could have saved possibly on some of those redos is what you're saying that's yeah. one area you can save money yeah because you're, you're going to enjoy the benefit of uh, better uh, frost protection and growth uh, versus a lot of the um, conventional farms that push the trees so hard it shortens their life and remember avocados get too tall and you can't pick so you have to cut them really hard then so why would you want to stimulate your avocado to get 60 feet tall in half the time when it's going to be frost tender disease and you won't legally be able to pick the top, you know, and you have to, and then you have to cut it down. So a huge amount of cost when you push the plants hard and you, you reduce labor by slowing things down and making them resilient, tough as nails to the environment. Think about that. That means less labor overall, no spraying for bugs, oh. no chopping the trees down, or if you do, it takes, you know, it's way down the road. Because avocados, they're not native to the area. They, you, eventually, they will get right. tall, so they do have to be topped. 
But if you can kick the can down the road and get crops in the meantime and have a crop that's frost, frost uh, uh, resistant, like you can get just using kelp alone makes an avocado crop two to three degrees frost protected. And we often get just about that much frost. So think about mm -hmm. your farmer next door. He has 100 acres, say, and he experiences massive frost damage. I've seen where all the avocados drop their leaves. It looks you could even see like trailers and things all out in the fields because they were all hidden by the leaves. Mm -hmm. And then the one next to it maybe loses, you know, 10% of the foliage over a hard right. frost. Well, think of the mm -hmm. difference. Those trees are strong. The other one, they have to recover it. Then there's fruit burn and then there's a branch burn because they're exposed now. The soil is going to dry out. Everything is changing over there in a the bad way. See, so there's all kinds of protecting your investment. By protecting you know what I'm hearing? I can't help but hear sort of analogy to if you invest in really healthy practices, you eat healthy organic food, you get proper exercise, you get sunlight, you have a, you know, a good social connections or whatnot. If you build a healthy life as, you know, as a child, then it's going to be a healthier, sturdier person that's not going to need as much medicine and, um, you know, not as much intervention through its lifetime, you might say. So the same is true for your plants. If you let it grow um, in a healthy, fully nutrified way, like really build a fully um, healthy organism on the front end, you're going to have a much less expensive, less intervention more productive entity, whatever it is. Well, yeah, I would add to that too. Uh, that's you said it perfectly. The analogy to human health is exact. I mean, this you know, a, a healthy lifestyle with healthy inputs can create a healthy outputs. So you can say it that way. Um, yeah, I gosh, that's a great analogy. I love that. It, it's just it's completely related too. And we're the plants are living biology. We're living biology. Why would it be different? Right. Why would it be and different? And that's, that's the new paradigm shift that I'm experiencing. But so I want to transition to this idea of sustainable versus regenerative. And it seems to me that the piece about regenerative is that it really looks at soil microbiome as that as almost, again, like to use the same analogy as the gut health of the land, whereas our gut, we now know, has such a huge impact. It's like we now are recognizing soil as the basis and foundation. Can you talk about that and and what what you see as essential ingredients? I see I'm a fan of asking multiple questions. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. It is like the gut. Remember, this is some of the same organisms. You know, bacillus, you see this on probiotics, you see this you know, there's lactobacillus, oh. bacillus subtilis is, is the one that we, uh, one of the organisms we buy. Um, these are living organisms that we inoculate the soil, just like people can have their gut inoculated. People, people do right. that as, as a medical procedure. So you literally inoculate with living organisms to make a healthy individual, to make a healthy soil. So, so wow. that's beautiful. And once it's good, remember, it stays good. It stays good. So this isn't like as long as you don't kill it as off. As long as you don't kill it off. So the the organic approach or this regenerative, it stays good. Whereas you know the old way, with chemicals, you're just dealing with a symptom, and then the problem is probably getting worse. Well, so sustainable to me means we keep the same, and you know it's maintained something over yeah, time. And yeah. regenerative, to me, is something where you give more than you take the equation is actually more more um strength in what is input i don't know is that I, am I making yes. myself clear i'm just trying to see that tease out the difference between the two well, it's not clear not it's not clear and it's not supposed to be clear it's just trying okay. to put I love it's that. trying to put the human condition that we're in into a, a one-word definition that that's impossible. Right. What I, I made my own definition. You know what it is? Because I yeah. had sustainable was the current thinking. It was I integrated pest management before that. It was 
something else, okay. you know, and then it became plant healthcare for a while. And, you know, we've, we've given it all these names. The names don't mean yeah. anything. You have to define it by what you're trying to achieve. For me, sustainable was I've, I've got this charge, 40 acres are the world's rarest plants. Corey, you've got to make them live. I said, okay, so part of my definition has to be they've got to last. Some of my plants can live a thousand years, a thousand years. I have plants that can live that long. So I have to think, okay, so that's good. They're rare plants, extinct in the wild in some cases. They've got to live a thousand years. Great. I got that as one of my, one of my, uh, part of my charge, part of my definition. But remember Madame Gonovalska, the famous opera singer who built the property. It was about artistic, beautiful uh, display and show the show, the performance of the theater. And I love that. And that, that's actually very inspiring to the human spirit to make something beautiful, not just scientific, but beautiful, something that calls to your, your soul. So I love that. So I actually put that on as part two. You have to produce not only something that lasts a thousand years, but it better be just gorgeous. I mean, like roses that you've never seen so beautiful and the scent so sweet. It's on the air as you approach the rose garden. You don't have to put your nose in a rose. You've already been in it before you get there. <laughs> And then the last part, it has to be environmental. Like it has to support ecology. That's always been my definition. It took me about 15 years to figure that out, but I was, what am I trying to do here? I've got to make the rare stuff last. And I can't lose it. it. I'm the last, I'm on the last effort to save these plants, say, you know, from South Africa, say some of these rare collections we have, but it's gotta be gorgeous because we have the highest level of aesthetics. And then I said, but you know what? No, I'm not doing any of this if it doesn't support the urban-rural interface but for ecology. All the critters, because as a child, that's all I cared about. Mm -hmm. So that came intuitively. So I said, well, actually, I have no problem with this. I can do all three. If I switch over to, the, to regenerative practices, I get all three. And it did. It, it was actually about 100x better. I, my plants are lasting. They're not only lasting. They came out of dormancy. And so we started producing more of the, these super rare plants. We just launched a world effort to, to protect this one super rare plant because we got it to cone, I think, three times now, producing these rare seeds. So we actually are do, getting everything we wanted and more by going to regenerative practice. Does that make sense? It does. Um, longevity is one of the practices, the core practices of Taoism, oh. which is something that's a guide for me. It's a nature philosophy and longevity is absolutely one of the key um, focuses. And then what I love is how you use beauty as yes. an essential. essential. Beauty is, is important. I think the Italians really understand that and how it improves every moment of our lives when we're surrounded by beauty of all kinds. And then three, I'm hearing supporting ecology critters of all kinds, whether you can see them or not, whether they're invisible or not, internal, external. And that absolutely, to me, is a, um, a mantra for life for me. I love what you're saying. It's, it's very selfish. I'm into self-preservation. And this is how you right. this is how you have a good life. You do those things. That's right. You go for longevity. But if you support beauty. your life, yeah. yeah, if you are the best Corey, then I get to be the best Stacy. And that's exactly. that's my motto. That's how I believe. Tell you, I made a lot of happy campers here today. <laughs> right. That's how we contribute to each other. Um, so I'm curious to know how are we going to be able to continue to learn from you? Because I know that you're not, you know, disappearing from the planet. You're still going to be connected to Lotus Land in certain ways. But I know that there's a new successor coming in. And I'm wondering how we can continue to learn from you or learn from Lotus Land or, yeah. Well, right now we've, we've downloaded the, the, the larger uh, algorithm based everything I can uh, be interviewed about so we had we hired someone to record all that for the technical guide that Lotus Sun will have for their internal use and, okay. and uh, the person that we hired did a great job and that's that's actually the 
larger body has been collected. So that's good. And we also have all my past recordings and whatnot. And what other people have done here too. There's, there's it's not, it's a team effect. I mean, I may be in charge of this department, but obviously I give all the credit to the professors of the universities. And then my course, my assistant has all the network of contacts. So he'll be continuing mm -hmm. the work too. And I'm not going to fall. So smart. Yeah. And then I can always have continue to revisit this podcast i'm hoping as a guest yes please <laughs> oh it's just it's well remember our my job has been to be a resource to the community right that's what you do in a nonprofit. so when i tell that's a right. uh, professor that i want to do his work with environmental landscaping say his research on native insects or something and i'm going to produce a program that will promote his work how happy is he and then it helps me so how happy am I to do my work to help the community with what right. the professor said? So you bring these groups of knowledgeable life. These people are committed major, like the majority of their life to this work. So you connect the whole community together from the researcher to the end user, the homeowner. And that's really what a nonprofit does. It solves a problem in society. You know, the overuse of pesticides chemicals, they're killing us, mm. killing the land. So mm -hmm. us being a, a, a really easy route, hopefully, through our web development, through my technical guide with, for the employees, which will all, which will be a version will be available, I'm sure, online. And then continuing with, with podcast too. I think what you're seeing is all the botanic gardens are interested in it. And then a lot of farms now, and then a lot of homeowners. And so you get to a critical mass. Once you have that tipping point, then... You right. start to see whole communities that say, no, 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 we're not going to be spraying Roundup anymore because we're going to plant our way to success, right? Remember the saying? We're going to plant our way to success. That is beautiful. I absolutely love what you said. And it's something unexpected where this rarefied, exotic, you might say relatively small botanic garden in Montecito, California can have such a positive and profound impact on community way beyond and benefit through trial and error and daring to work with nature instead yeah. of imagining we can work against her. Yeah. How did, why did that work? How could, so that means a very early small, relatively small garden with a very small board of trustees made up of uh, just five community members in this area, Montecito trusted, a bunch of kids basically and horticulturalists of all ages but it was, it was quite an age spread actually but i was pretty young why would they trust and, and uh, i guess we just got really lucky we're in a green area that has a lot of support from biologists that first board trusted these young kids i guess they saw something in us he said you know what i can tell you're going to give a hundred percent to try to solve this problem how to keep these plants alive which are so rare and do it in a way that's going to be um, good for the community too. They, mm. they trusted us. I love the word trust. Yeah. And I want to say sort of in conclusion here that you being empowered to trust your unique genius, I'll call it. That's something that, um, Plato talked about and James Hillman talked about and Michael Mead talks about is the unique genius that you were born with and that wasn't squashed out of you, but rather was developed and included. And that's a lesson for each one of us because we all come from somewhere, you know, and I like to talk about, I started as a psychologist and I found schools to be ecosystems of living things. And then I saw it now I see it everywhere. So we each have our own unique perspective. And I think, and then the idea of seeing beauty in the all, that's another incredible takeaway and, and trust. Trust. But also I'm hearing slowness, like our speedy, culture that keeps mm. getting speedier that we have to remember to pull back and change our pace in certain ways. And maybe that's the way gardening is healing. You know, I've heard that out of a lot of people in the last several years. It's like, for me, gardening is mental and physical, emotional healing. And I wonder if that's why it forces us to shift down. A it couple does. Of you can work fast. Yeah. If you're a high energy person, like people call me a high energy person and I go, yeah, that's fine. Like, 
<laughs> I love that. Good. Okay, well, endurance athlete, whatnot. But you can work fast on a slower project that takes longer to come to fruition. Yeah. So think how ripe that fruit is when it drops. If you work fast over a long period on a very solid, slower realization of a bigger goal, like full-on ecological balance at a botanic garden, see the payoff right. is so big. And it's not even hard because we did all the we worked out all the problems. I mean, we made all the mistakes, and now we get to share what the the fastest way to go to it. Don't make all the mistakes; just go right to the solution. Why right. why, why would you want to recreate the wheel? We, we did it for you, you know. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, thank you so much, and we will definitely have you back on because there's so much for you to teach us. Thanks, Corey. Oh, thanks for having me, Stacy. This we always have a blast together. We do. <laughs> That's a wrap for today's episode of Regenerative Spaces. If you found this episode valuable or thought-provoking, share it with a friend and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll keep the conversation going over on Instagram. So join me at Stacy Poliche and share your thoughts, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. And before we go, your support means the world to me. If you have a moment, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help us reach even more people looking to spark sustainable change in our world. Stay curious, stay inspired, and until next time, this is Stacy Poliche and you've been listening to Regenerative Spaces. Regenerative Spaces.